Coming up on Philosophy Talk, worship. And now, please rise for our opening hymn, uh, In the Garden of Eden by I, Ron Butterfly. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. In the Garden of Eden, Some things deserve to be worshipped while others don't. What makes something worthy of worship? How do we tell the false gods from the true? Why do you worship? Hey Marge, remember when we used to make out to this hymn? In a world that has been disenchanted by crass materialism, by modern science. Are there still things that invoke wonder and awe? Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Worship, coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, our topic is worship. Ken, I looked up worship in the dictionary, and I don't really agree with the definition I found. Well, give us the dictionary definition, John, and we'll figure out what you disagree with. Okay, worship, colon, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Then they give us examples, the worship of God and ancestor worship. Oh, well, what's wrong with that? I don't get it. Well, first of all, it's inconsistent, or at least the uh, examples don't fit with the definition. God is a deity, that's that's true, but my ancestors are not deities. Well, Far from it, for well, the most part. Well, John, picky, picky, picky. Look, maybe people who worship their ancestors, you know, who engage in ancestor worship, are deifying their ancestors, thinking of them as deities. Well, this whole deity thing doesn't seem required, as far, far as I can see. The philosopher Bertrand Russell didn't believe in deities, but he wrote a very famous essay called A Free Man's Worship. So what did Russell think uh, uh, he should be worshiping? Well, what he thought we should do was this. We build a temple for the worship of our own ideals, in music, in architecture, in the untroubled kingdom of reason, and in the golden sunset magic of lyrics, where beauty shines and glows, remote from the touch of sorrow, remote from the fear of change, remote from the failures and disenchantments of the world of fact. In the contemplation of these things, the vision of heaven will shape itself in our hearts. Gosh, sounds to me like Russell's suggesting that we worship logic. I can kind of go along with that. Songs and buildings? I think that's a bit weird, John. The dictionary seems actually much more sensible. I mean, if we worship something, shouldn't it be a deity? You know, something like a person, but more rational, more forgiving, more perfect than us. Well, a lot of people would agree with Russell that truth and harmony are perfectly worthy of worship. But, but you know, Ken, the, the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of worshiping ancestors. Now you're sounding atavistic primitive, John. You're sounding like a primitive dude. Well, look at it this way. Our ancestors made it possible for us to exist. In that sense, they are the true ground of our being, to use a theological phrase. But I don't just mean our mothers and fathers and grandparents. Evolution teaches us that our ancestors go way back. We should worship the whole tree of life. Well, that seems really weird. Worship, what, dead dinosaurs? Look, at least God or gods can appreciate being worshipped, and they can give the worshiper or the worshiping community, they can give something back, some payback. 
Well, that's a good point. Okay, I'll revise my view. I think we should really worship the earth. It's truly the ground of the being of the whole tree of life. No earth, no tree of life, no ancestors, no me, no you, Ken. And if we worship the earth instead of ravaging it, we will get some payback. It will remain a hospitable place for a bit longer. Gosh, I don't know, John. But, you know, look, the more I think about it, the more I, the more I like what Kant had to say. Which was? Well, the, the two things fill the mind with ever-increasing wonder and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Look, I think the human-created system of norms, I think it's awesome. And it, it, and if we worship it, that worship may, may make it work even better. And, and the earth that you like so much is part of the starry heavens. So, you know, there I get to agree with both you and Kant. That's a rare opportunity. Well, thinking about it even more, I think we should talk to a philosopher who's thought a lot about worship and can present a more traditional approach than either you or I seem to favor. And we'll soon be joined by someone who fits that need. That's Daniel Speak from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. We want to hear from our listeners as well. I'm sure they have some thoughts on what is or isn't worthy of worship or whether worship's a good idea in the first place. The number is one eight hundred. You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, talked to a group in San Francisco that, at least at first glance, has an even less orthodox approach to the proper of object of worship than you or I, John. She files this report. In the 1960s, saxophonist John Coltrane helped bring jazz to new and revolutionary places. Many scholars have said that if you listen to a John Coltrane solo, you can hear the cadences of black preaching. Scott Saul is a professor at UC Berkeley, an author of Freedom Is, Freedom Ain't, Jazz and the Making of the Sixties. In the way that he'll take a, a small idea, a small bit of melody, and then conjugate it and conjugate it and work out all its variations. And it's a way of finding in a bit of simplicity a world of complication and a, a world of beautiful elaboration. And you could say it's similar to how people search after God. Jesus and Hey, Lord God Almighty, and you kind of go down, go. That's Archbishop Franzo King. He's the co-founder of the Church of John Coltrane, a small storefront in San Francisco's Fillmore District. In 1965, King had a conversion experience when hearing Coltrane play live. I think after the sound baptism, the music became more than a cultural and historical experience, but it also became a mandate from the Holy Spirit for us to get creatively involved in the establishing of the community and covering the globe with what we call Coltrane consciousness. King helped start a listening clinic where people would get together and listen to Coltrane records. The group grew into a full-fledged church, and in 1982, it was accepted into the African Orthodox Church of the West. King became an archbishop, and John Coltrane was canonized as a saint. We say that anointed sound that leaped down from the throne of heaven out of the very mind of God and incarnated in one John, well, I am Coltrane, and we beheld his beauty. Every Sunday, King reads from scripture and gives sermons quoting John Coltrane. And then he can reveal to us those things that are hidden. More than that, he tries to recreate for his congregation the experience of being baptized by sound. 
The Church Jazz Ensemble features Archbishop King on drums and sax. He didn't start out as an instrumentalist, but learned to play as the church grew. It began with a love for this music, this African-American classical music, and the revolutionary spirit of the music. And as uh, St. John Coltrane said, the, the freedom of the music. And it prepared for us the kind of mindset that uh, encouraged free thinking, and it uh, was the kind of music that dispelled doubts and fears. The music of John Coltrane, man, there's so many words, to, it's, it's, it's amazing. For the last 16 years, Irene Kathleen has been coming to the church where she first heard John Coltrane. I really thank God for John Coltrane and, and, and God giving him the blessing, the everything to be who he is. Uh, John Coltrane's music is very powerful. It's uh, a music that we really need that we believe that continues to keep the earth in orbit. Berkeley professor Scott Saul says Coltrane offers a kind of mantra to carry with you. It's not so much about a journey to a destination. It's about living within the force field suggested by the music. It asks you to inhabit a kind of space. For Archbishop King, the Church of John Coltrane is an extension of that space. It's about uplifting. And it was uh, St. John's desire, as he says in his testimony, to, to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. So yes, I do feel closer, but even the presence of, of God in that music and in that sound. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.